Hello, I'm Dr. Anne Holdaway, and as Education Officer for the British Association for Parental and Dental Nutrition, BAPEN, I have the privilege of hosting this inaugural podcast series focused on bringing to life the content of the top tips in clinical nutrition produced by the British Intestinal Failure Alliance, BIFA. In today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by experts Dr. Aminda De Silva and Pete Turner, and together we'll be discussing the BIFA top tips on preventing and managing refeeding syndrome. Many patients at risk of refeeding syndrome will be cared for by various members of the interdisciplinary team, and I therefore have no doubt that this podcast will have broad appeal to nurses, pharmacists, dietitians, and doctors involved in the provision of nutrition support. Before we delve into today's topic on refeeding syndrome, I'd like to tell you a little more about today's eminent guests. Dr. Aminda De Silva, known as Dares to Friends and Colleagues, is a consultant gastroenterologist at the Royal Berkshire Hospital, where he's been able to pursue interests in intestinal failure, inflammatory bowel disease and bowel cancer screening since his appointment in 2009. As clinical lead for gastroenterology and intestinal failure, Des has been instrumental in the Royal Berkshire Hospital being designated as one of the national home parental nutrition centres in the UK. Des informs me his interest in clinical nutrition was inspired during his specialist training in gastroenterology, clinical nutrition and intestinal failure at University Hospital Southampton and the Institute of Human Nutrition, where he had the privilege of working as clinical research fellow to Professor Mike Stroud. Dares has maintained an interest in refeeding syndrome since his days as a research fellow and has published several reviews and book chapters on the subject. I'm also joined by Pete Turner, who, following on from a degree in pharmacology, qualified as a dietitian in the 1990s. Pete has spent the majority of his career specialising in clinical nutrition, with a focus on the use of parental nutrition and nutrition support in intensive care. After working for 20 years in Liverpool, Pete took up his current post as a nutrition support clinical specialist at the Ulster Hospital in 2016. He's accumulated a wealth of knowledge in nutrition support during his career and is a great role model and ambassador for the dietetic profession. Highly respected in the dietetic community, Pete has chaired the Parental and Enteral Nutrition Group of the British Dietetic Association. And within the BAPEN community, Pete is renowned for not only his clinical knowledge, but his creativity and leadership in chairing the BAPEN Programmes Committee, consistently producing blockbusting programmes for the annual BAPEN Conference. I'm delighted to be joined by both of you today to explore the topic of refeeding and would like to thank you both for bringing your expertise to our audience and welcoming you to this podcast. Thank you very much and uh, it's great to great to be invited to speak on the Biffa top tips on refeeding syndrome. Thanks for me too and yes it's, I'm delighted to be here and thank you too for, for the invitation. Moving on to today's topic of refeeding then, I know when I qualified 35 years ago, I'd been taught very little, if anything, about the refeeding syndrome. 
uh, particularly in my undergrad years. And my first experience observing patients at risk was post-op in the gastrointestinal surgical patients where we used to progress parental nutrition feeds relatively quickly and often observed and had to react to falling levels of magnesium, phosphate and other electrolytes and adjust feeding rates and supplement in those who weren't considered at high risk. So my first question is, uh, and I'm going to really give this one to Des, is when did we learn about refeeding syndrome and importantly start to take more note of it and anticipate the risk in practice? Right. Well, I think if you go back to antiquity, uh, you've seen the writings of Celsus and so forth, that, that, that um, refeeding syndromes first really commented on in, in, in AD 70, I think, in the siege of Jerusalem. So I think Christians who were uh, released from captivity, that those who engorged themselves didn't do very well, while those who were more moderate in their celebration survived. But if you go to modern literature, um, I think it was first described in 1951 in the Annals of Internal Medicine, where uh, prisoners of war released by by liberators, they were given a lot of food, uh, uh, up to 100 kilocalories per kilo per day. And uh, not surprisingly now, we we understand that many of them didn't do very well from what we now know as refeeding syndrome. And I think it, it, although it was described back in the 1950s, it sort of came into much more prominence in the 80s and 90s, you know, in, in a series of reviews in the BMJ and so forth. So I think uh, we're talking about a syndrome or in fact, many syndromes, and they are to do with, with when you, and then the clinical features that you find when you start to um, introduce food into someone who has been starved of food for a long time. And, and, and you often get a lot of electrolyte shifts, fluid shifts, uh, and problems with thiamine and various other things that can happen. And to, collectively, I think th- those are the syndromes which we now know as refeeding syndrome. Pete, do you want to come in on that and add anything to that sort of definition? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I agree uh, entirely with, with what Des has said so far. I mean, it's certainly the, there's clear cases that were documented uh, after the Second World War. And then, of course, Ansel Keys in his classic Minnesota experiment where they actually um, starved some conscientious objectors. So American soldiers who wouldn't fight in the war starved them over six weeks till they lost 25% of their body weight and then refed them. And he certainly noticed some of the uh, electrolyte shifts, but particularly some of the physiological things that can happen, like developing edema and arrhythmias and things like this. So we know it it has been demonstrated in humans under laboratory conditions certainly we wouldn't consider that ethical today but but the um the biology of human starvation by ansel keys is uh, is very fascinating you can get some summaries of it quite easily online so definitely worth having a look at i certainly wasn't aware of it when i was first working as a dietitian so uh so when I'm ever asked the question of whether I've seen anyone get serious harm from refeeding syndrome, I don't think so. But it was that long ago when I started that on the uh, head and neck surgery ward, they would actually bring people in, put a Riles tube into them, and then they all got the same amount of buildup poured down their Riles tube at the same amount every day for everyone. And some of them passed away very quickly. And Jeremy Nightingale and I have sometimes wondered whether patients like this that we saw did get refeeding syndrome but we didn't check the bloods and when you did they got sent away to the lab and the bit of paper came back about a week later with the result on it 
Mm, I'd say I was there with you, Pete, you know, uh, working in the southwest of England, probably experiencing some uh, similar cases. Um, So just in a nutshell for our listeners, can you explain the pathophysiology of refeeding syndrome? Okay, so in a starved state, the body tries to conserve as much energy as it can. And uh, our predominant use of energy uh, is, is in trying to maintain cellular homeostasis. So if you're trying to conserve energy, you will wind down energy consuming processes. And one of the main things are the sodium potassium pumps. So if you reduce the turnover of, uh, of those pumps, um, the intracellular cations such as magnesium, potassium, calcium, and mainly phosphate, they start to leak out of the cells into the circulation. Sodium goes from the circulation into cells and draws water with it. So you can't tolerate very high concentrations of potassium, magnesium, and so forth in your circulation. So you then pee out those electrolytes in your urine. And and that's the sort of steady state you find yourself in when when you're in a starved state for a long time. If you suddenly come along and then introduce a lot of energy into that system, the pumps all wind back up again and they start to extract the uh, what are normally intracellular cations from the circulation. So your phosphate, potassium, magnesium, calcium, all of those plummet as they go back into cells. And at the same time as that, sodium and water are coming back out into the circulation. And so you have a sudden fluid influx into the uh, circulation, which then leads to fluid overload in a system which has then not got many electrolytes going around. And the heart obviously needs uh, potassium and magnesium very precisely controlled and makes the pump prone to arrhythmias. Um, And so the first signs of fluid overload will be an increase in respiratory rate, increase in pulse, and you'll see them being short of breath, uh, increasing their respiratory rate and dropping their saturations. Um, And then, so that's the classical manifestation of, you know, the fluid and electrolyte shifts that happen uh, in refeeding syndrome. And Pete, yeah, I think you want to come in on that. First. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So um, Des has summed up the the electrolyte shifts, which is um, possibly the classic one that we know. As we said before, that refeeding syndrome is probably many syndromes um, that we see. Um, but the other the other main aspect of it, so the, 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 there's two main aspects, I would say. One is the electrolyte shifts that Des has summed up really well there. Um, but the other one is obviously thiamine, metabolism so essentially um thiamine vitamin b1 you don't store very well so water soluble you can actually only store it for about well you can you can become depleted in 20 days so i've, I've seen that documented in in papers so you can actually become quite depleted in 20 days now thiamine has got lots of functions um, and one of the really important ones is in the central nervous system where it's got a lot of very important uh, functions for neurological processes so it's, it's very important for nerves and things to work correctly and it's other other important function is in that good old Krebs cycle that we all know and love from A-level chemistry in our first years at university and there's actually a cofactor in the Krebs cycle called pyruvate decarboxylase that is thiamine dependent so if we've got someone who's starved themselves and they're depleted of thiamine 
after as I say it can happen in just uh, 20 days in some cases so they might have very little thiamine left in their central nervous system if we come along and then give them carbohydrate and calories suddenly we're going to stimulate the Krebs cycle and we're going to use up a lot of that thiamine in the Krebs cycle and carbohydrate metabolism and that can lead to a sudden massive depletion in the central nervous system and there's none left for these neurological functions uh, and that can actually manifest to something called Wernicke's encephalopathy of which the symptoms are confusion confabulation so that's actually where so you think someone is talking sense but in actual fact if you know them it's complete nonsense uh, abnormal eye movements called nystagmus and ataxia so these symptoms can occur because of the central depletion of thiamine and hopefully we're going to prevent that happening by providing when we start feeding adequate amount of thiamine and i think we're going to talk in detail about the different preparations and the roots later on but just to this stage it's since I've mentioned those symptoms of Wernicke's encephalopathy, obviously it's patients, uh, alcoholics are the ones that everyone seems to think it only occurs in, but it can happen just due to starvation. Obviously, alcoholics, it's really serious ones, only drink alcoholic drinks and don't any, eat any food. So they're often the highest risk ones. And sometimes alcoholic enteropathy can damage thiamine absorption, but it can happen and it is documented. There are cases that it can happen just due to starvation. But if you do see these symptoms, so the confusion, confabulation, and nystagmus, they've got, and you decide they've got Wernicke's encephalopathy, it is really important to get thiamine into the brain super quickly. Otherwise, it can progress to something called Korsakoff psychosis, which is a permanent brain injury. Uh, and the way you'll do that is with a high, high dose. Uh, intravenous preparation and we'll talk a little bit more about the doses of that later on but it's important to recognize those symptoms prevention's better so if we do it by the book and give them the amount of vitamins when we start that's better but everyone should be aware of those symptoms of uh, Wernicke's encephalopathy. Thanks Pete and then so if we're trying to prevent it then uh, trying to prevent it occurring in the first place, picking these patients up in practice, what sort of things should clinicians be looking out for? And we know from this, there's been some debate within BAPEN, within other groups about, you know, what are the red flags? What are the risk criteria? So I'd like to hear from both of you of what sort of indicators you might look for in the patient's biochemistry, prolonged fasting, how long are we talking about, amount of weight loss. So what would your recommendations be for our listeners around the sort of risk criteria? So in, in terms of risk, NICE have a few definitions uh, of who um, are at high risk and so forth. And so uh, I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with those. Um, uh, I think they talk about uh, unintentional weight loss of more than 10%. Uh, a low BMI, and if you have not eaten something for more than five days or or even longer, um, those are being the high risk ones. Uh, from clinical practice, I think actually it's it's the length of time that they've had minimal or very low intake that that seems to be the red flag for me, um, particularly in patients. You know, the, the subgroups of patients who seem to be at very high risk. The, the group par excellence uh, that demonstrate this risk are the are patients with anorexia nervosa, but you often see them in patients on care of the elderly wards, as well as an oncology wards. So, so there are criteria. If you're thinking about looking at their bloods and trying to work out, are, are they at risk because they've got low electrolytes? I just be a little bit wary because a, a one-off reading of someone's electrolytes 
might well lull you into a false sense of security because you know you you control your serum levels of of, of the electrolytes very very precisely and and it tells you really very little indeed about what their total body stores are and importantly what their intracellular levels are so in fact someone's potassium level may well be entirely normal or even high if they're in a, if they're in a degree of renal failure so as i say a one off reading of someone's electrolytes won't help you but serial measurements of electrolytes after you're supplementing food can give you quite a good uh, indication of, of how well you're getting on thanks pete anything to add there yeah no i think that's that's a really key point from des there that uh, the, the plasma levels don't reflect the whole body status a lot of people don't actually realize that 98 percent of your potassium is intracellular so all the while you're starved as des has already said um, potassium can leak out of the cells passively so the plasma levels actually can remain completely normal but all this time you're building up a massive intracellular deficit um so you know we we still hear it a lot um from from I, I, i've kind of mentioned this before but unfortunately it seems that doctors seem to be trained just to go completely off plasma levels so so they'll look at the plasma and say it's normal normal potassium but that's just come out of their cells basically and you're not going to find out how intracellularly depleted you are until you give them carbohydrate release insulin activate cell membrane pumps and if there is a massive deficit then you're going to get a plummet so um, although low levels of electrolytes before feeding is one of the high risk criteria in nice as Des said, don't be lulled into a false sense of security if the uh, plasma levels are completely normal. So, you know, we, we see this patients with BMIs of 10, 13, you know, classically, as Des has said, the eating disorders ones, and they come in and their their bloods when they arrive look incredibly normal, you know, um, and it's not until you start feeding them that you sometimes realise just the massive deficit and the huge amount of electrolytes you have to replace. And you're sort of then lulled into this false sense of security potentially. So if it goes unnoticed, what would happen? So clinically, if they if someone starts to develop refeeding syndrome, the first things you'll notice will be an increase in their pulse and increase in their respiratory rate. You might notice that their saturations start to drop. Um, they might feel a bit short of breath. Um, and then if you were to measure electrolytes, you might well start to see a drop classically in their phosphate levels but obviously potassium magnesium calcium and so forth so i think those are the things that you can measure but i think you know pete and i were discussing uh, this just a little earlier even with normal or even just above normal levels i think we would both advocate in someone that you are worried about refeeding i think we would both advocate prophylactic replacement at the same time as you start the feed uh, with with oral replacement depending on levels and so forth to try and prevent that from happening and uh, pete would you like to comment on whether you'd actually give any supplementary electrolytes before you start feeding well i wouldn't i wouldn't try and correct levels before feeding and i think nice was quite uh, quite specific on this um Certainly the Oxford Radcliffe ones had always said correct electrolyte levels before you start feeding. But and in actual fact, NICE then said you don't need to do that start at 10 calories per kilo. And there was all this stuff about, oh, NICE are being too cautious. But in actual fact, if you really look at the NICE guidelines, they're less cautious than the predecessors because they said start feeding and replace the electrolytes. I don't do it beforehand. Now, interestingly, as Desert said, it's... Every, all the experts, I think, agree 
uh, that its prophylactic provision is, is good. So you're starting off feeding it about 10 calories per kilo in most cases. We're probably going to go on to the variation in different guidelines, but let's just say we start feeding at that. Because we're giving low amounts of feed, we're not going to give very large amounts of electrolytes either, but it's good to try and meet that target. Physiologically, it absolutely makes sense to try and give two to four millimoles per kilo of, of uh, potassium, 0.3 to 0.6 of phosphate, and 0.2 to 0.4 of magnesium if they're at high risk of refeeding syndrome. So it makes physiological sense. We've talked about that massive intracellular deficit of potassium that you can have. And even not even from just preventing classic refeeding syndrome, just physiologically for all these cell membrane pumps and everything, it makes sense to give it back to the depleted body. But it's incredibly difficult to do that on a standard ward when you're not working with an expert team. So if I'm starting parental nutrition, because I'm with the nutrition team, I can we can more or less dictate what goes into the uh, into the parental nutrition. So we would aim for giving those electrolytes. We can put huge amounts of the potassium into a bag because it's quite a stable electrolyte. But if I'm starting an enteral feed or a, or oral nutrition support on a standard ward, there is absolutely no way. Quite often, I can convince doctors to prescribe additional electrolytes when the plasma levels are normal you can you can talk uh till you blue in your face in the face about the uh the physiology of it all and uh, unfortunately i said they're so trained towards plasma levels at medical school etc it's very hard and then if that does happen then you really have to monitor carefully and then when you get the drop make sure that you can convince them to give adequate amounts we might come on to this later on but a lot of standard policies in hospital policies for correction of hypo kalemia etc don't really give that much when you're talking in terms of refeeding syndrome so it can be very difficult and it's hard for the band fives the band sixes you know when they're when they're constantly fighting this battle but um you know you've got this expert guidelines you can hopefully explain the rationale and even if you can't get prophylactic electrolytes when you do get a deficit occurring then try and correct it as quickly as you can and as aggressively as you can quoting nice guidance etc and um des i know you've done quite a bit of work on refeeding syndrome in parental nutrition and pete's just talked about how you have much greater control about giving this you know sort of electrolytes at higher levels than perhaps you would through other feeding methods do you want to talk about you know the relative risks with each method of nutritional support um you know parental nutrition we can we can put an awful lot in there at once if you like so absolutely so i think in years gone by uh, with parental nutrition uh, again well-meaning teams i think you're able to give a lot of calories um to people without having to rely on their on their appetite and you can bypass all all these systems and so theoretically at least you can certainly i think be a little bit more um, worried about developing refeeding syndrome but i think with nice guidelines in 2006 and common practice i think you know most people are starting at far more modest levels that you know aiming for in the region of 30 kilocalories per kilo per day and certainly 50 percent of that for the first 48 hours and I think Pete is going to talk about the incretin effect and the fact that actually you're possibly at much more risk of developing refeeding syndrome with oral and enteral roots rather than parenteral, as there seems to be something about the oral and enteral roots which stimulate other systems. But I'll leave Pete to talk about that. So I think in practice, 
in the last 10, 20 years, we don't see as much refeeding syndrome with intravenous feeding as you do with oral and enteral, but certainly in the past, um, there has been problems. And even, uh, you know, there's a constant debate about should we be giving higher calories in, in ICU, critically ill and well patients? And, you know, you'll see various articles from time to time. Uh, and I, I still think that, it, you know, um, being cautious and starting a little bit more slowly to start with is probably going to be of benefit. So Pete, oral and enteral, what have you got to say on those matters? Yep, absolutely. I mean, uh, so definitely um, parental nutrition, probably I w- there is a paper that has actually suggested it is lower risk and partly because it's it's so closely monitored by nutrition it's prescribed by a nutrition team or very experienced dietitians and pharmacists at least anyway so probably um oral and enteral are where you're going to see the highest risk and that might be because it's slightly less experienced staff and even those of us as I said that are quite experienced I mean I've been doing this for longer than I care to admit but uh, trying to convince junior doctors to prescribe electrolytes <laughs> etc so th- there might be that that it's, it's harder with a, a, a feed when it's a standalone you know dietitian trying to work with a team who aren't experienced in refeeding syndrome um, so there probably is that and you know, obviously you've got to push them to do the monitoring and things as well but there is a physiological reason why oral and enteral feeding are at higher risk for refeeding syndrome. And that's called something called the incretin effect. So when you take carbohydrate or foods orally, you actually stimulate the release of some gut peptides. So it's um, GLP-1 and GIP are the main ones. So it's glucagon-like peptide one. Um, so when you eat, it stimulates the release of this from the gut. And those peptides actually stimulate insulin release from the pancreas. Um, so there will be a bigger insulin response to 50 grams of carbohydrate given orally versus 50 grams given parenterally. And that has been very well demonstrated. There's lots of papers that show this in humans, um, that you get a much bigger uh, insulin response to um, an oral or enteral load. So so you're going to get much more insulin released and much more stimulation of cell membrane pumps and therefore shifts into cells of electrolytes. So that's the theoretical reason why oral and enteral uh, are a bigger risk for refeeding. So, you know, it, it is uh, kind of uh, it does make it a bit more difficult because, as I say, that's often the ones that are monitored less. And I often feel that, you know, when you're talking about oral nutrition support, the people who debate for hours and weeks and years on end about whether you're starting at five calories per kilo, 10 calories per kilo, and then building up to day two, when you're talking about stuff provided by a hospital catering department, what the patient's appetite's like, what the nursing staff give them, whether they dish out the nutrition, the oral nutritional supplements as they're supposed to, et cetera, it's hugely variable. You don't have that level of control that you do with um, enteral and certainly not parenteral. So, so the, the debaters on the calories per kilo side of things, if it's oral and enteral, I think they're wasting their time. But I think what we need to do in those cases is make sure we start low prescription of our oral nutritional supplements, but build up swiftly, try and pro- provide prophylactic electrolytes if you possibly can. Um, if you're working with a good team, then uh, try and convince them to give those prophylactic electrolytes. Start low and build up swiftly, but 
be aware that there's going to be quite big variations in their calories per kilo just because of you know appetite hospital catering department etc etc whether they've got the supplement on the ward all those sorts of things and one would hope if you're looking at oral nutrition and you've got a patient who's not been managing much diet and not been provided in the past with any advice about a liquid diet, for example, and suddenly you're presenting them with these nutritional supplements that can be very nutrient dense, that you would hopefully have a dietitian involved to give that advice and liaise with the other staff to say, you know, take it easy. Uh, you may be precipitating refeeding syndrome and we need to be on the lookout for it. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, um, I think there are a few, it's, as you say, in most cases um, with the sick patients, their uh, appetite regulates the, the build up. You know, you, you're always encouraging them. You're always having to encourage them to take their supplements and have their snacks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so usually it is kind of controlled build up, hopefully. But on rare occasions, I have seen people who suddenly started eating vast amount, some alcoholics who've come in, got through the detox and then suddenly start eating everything in sight. And uh, I think there's been some homeless cases that I know that have been brought in, you know, they've just not had the money to get food or whatever. And then as soon as they're in an environment where there's food provided, they start eating massive amounts. So uh, it does happen. Uh, and obviously in those ones, you have to monitor them very, very carefully because it's very hard to convince doctors, nursing staff, et cetera, to, um, to try and control the amount you're giving them when they come in malnourished. Um, mm. So monitoring is absolutely key there and obviously aiming to provide prophylactic electrolytes, I would say, if you could, and if not, then make sure that you give them aggressively if there are any deficits. So moving on then to, you know, what supplementation you give, um, we know that thiamine, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and phosphate all require special attention. So I just wonder if you'd like to sort of talk about these in turn to really uh, you know, emphasize the message around the supplementation of these specific nutrients and how you would go about supplementing them. So um, I think with the electrolytes, if you can give them orally, that is, that gives you a lot of advantages. Um, the, the main one being that you don't have to dilute it in a lot of sodium and, and fluid and water. Because uh, uh, inevitably, particularly if they're on a normal ward, you can't give concentrated electrolytes. Um, and so uh, if you have to give them those electrolytes diluted in sodium and water, then you are going to be perpetuating some of the fluid problems that can occur. So, you know, there are a variety of oral supplements out there, Sandokade, Sandofos, um, and so forth, um, uh, uh, that can be given. But if their electrolytes are very low, I think you would want to give intravenous replacement. And you might want to do that in an H HMU or HDU setting where you can have a central line and give them concentrated electrolytes without having to give them, uh, you know, too much fluid um, alongside the electrolytes. Pete, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it would be absolutely fantastic to have uh, the luxury of an HDU that would take patients that we, we request to, uh, to, to give them concentrated electrolytes. But unfortunately, um, it, it doesn't seem to happen. And I've actually looked at a lot of, lot of um, hospital policies for, for correcting electrolyte. And it seems that very few hospitals actually talk about uh, having the luxury of being able to place a central line on any unit and give concentrated electrolytes. So for example, most 
policy. I actually looked at about 11, which I did a, a bape and abstract on this, but 11 policies for hypokalemia. And all of them said that if your uh, potassium was less than 2.5, you should get a litre of saline with 20 to 40 millimoles of potassium in it, which for a 40 kilo person is like much more than the, the we actually recommend about 20 mils per kilo in refeeding so they're already getting more than their 800 mils they'll be getting about five or six times the amount of sodium and chloride that they require and yet only one millimole per kilo of potassium so it really isn't ideal so it's it's quite difficult to know what to do if you can still persist with the oral preparations it's still quite easy to give 80 millimoles in a small volume with the oral preparation so i think you have to look at the case in front of you but unfortunately they will default to hospital policies a lot and i have seen some patients become very edematous as the result of being given potassium in sodium chloride uh, there's, a, there's also i've been interested to get Desi's opinion on this. Uh, there's quite a few policies I've seen, and I've worked in a hospital which had one which said never correct, never use uh, 5% dextrose as your diluent for potassium because it will drive the potassium into the cells. Um, and I think this is incredibly flawed logic because that's where the deficit is in, in, in refeeding syndrome. We need to correct the intracellular deficit before you're going to be able to correct the the plasma deficit anyway so i think i think it is, it's it's a, a very um uh, not very careful thought of recommendation than that um, we know from healthy volunteers delete lobos did, did lots of experiments on on medical students and we know that if you give them a couple of liters of dextrose they'll excrete the fluid very very quickly but if you give them saline they don't excrete it for a long long time afterwards uh, and if they get hyperchloremia that constricts renal arteries and lowers the glomerular filtration rate as well so sodium chloride is very bad for your starved patient if, 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 you know, if we assume they haven't got high GI losses, but for most patients, they're going to get far too much, far too much sodium, far too much water, far too much chloride. So I would say 5% dextrose is the uh, preferred diluent for, for correcting potassium, particularly because the, the deficit is intracellular, but also because you should be able to excrete the fluid load. Obviously, you might have to take the calories into consideration. It's 200 calories for a litre of dextrose. And in some cases, you might need to look out for uh, hyponatremia. So if it's a very small patient and you give them a lot of fluid, they could get a dilutional effect on the sodium. So you would need to be aware of that. So look at your patient and see, see which is the best diluent. But I would think, and I hope Desi is going to agree with me, that 5% dextrose would be better. I do agree, Pete. I, yes. I mean, with those caveats that you have in mind, um, I think you're absolutely right. Those, those, those experiments by Delete Lobo, I mean, the medical students, the ones who were in the, the saline group refused to, to go. It was a crossover trial, wasn't it? And they refused to go into the other part of the, uh, the trial because they felt so unwell after having just normal saline. So I think avoiding normal saline in this situation where they are overloaded anyway is very sensible. And yes, they should be able to get rid of the fluid with the 5% dextrose. I think there was a lot of confusion and angst about giving too much glucose because people are worried about exacerbating the refeeding uh, you know issue that that you're trying to deal with and i've even said i've even heard people say well give glucagon instead you know for people who have got low sugars and so forth which is confusing things even more so because you know they don't have glycogen stores either 
but um, no, I, I think I think the I think the main thing is to persuade your HMU, HDU, or ICUs to take these patients so that they can get a central line in and get concentrated electrolytes. And if that's not uh, available, then I think five percent dextrose would be better. But obviously, looking at the patient in front of you, as you say. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely key. The bit that you have to look to see, um, you know, what what's happening with the patient in front of you. I mean, bearing in mind that we're actually looking at the Biffa top tip, so it's uh, it might be looked at more by people uh, dealing with intestinal failure patients, and often these patients do have very high losses yeah. um, from from fistulae, from stomas, from NG drainage tubes, etc. And if that's the case, then it is okay to replace the electrolytes in, in saline because you're replacing the deficit. Have a look at the other nice guidance, CG174, and there's a very good diagram on the uh, that shows the ongoing losses from any, any GI part of the GI tract you want to know about. It'll tell you what electrolytes you're using. So you can then look at your you know, whether what is the best diluent, whether it is normal saline. And in a lot of cases where there's where there's losses from the GI tract, then that would be the one to go for in that case. So, you know, there's not one size fits all. And I think that is possibly the problem with a lot of the standard policies that are in hospitals for correction of electrolytes in that they do seem to be one size fits all. And maybe that does work for all the other causes of hypokalemia that, that would happen in hospital patients. But in the staffed ones, uh, it is definitely not a, a case of one size fits all, I would say. So here you're trying to be anticipatory and preventative uh, and make sure your knowledge is up to date on all of these elements and do refer to um, some of the guidance. And I know for dietitians, there's some really great uh, information in the Penge Pocket Guide around refeeding and uh, also information on on the losses, like you say, Pete, from, from the gut. So, uh, yeah, you do have to think about the patient in front of you, as you say. Um, I know you briefly touched on feeding rates, but would you want to say anything further on feeding rates with the various different methods of feeding? So the nice guidelines are that, that you start at 50% of estimated requirements in all comers and, and less than that if they are deemed to be at high risk. Um, I, I think as a nutrition support team in our hospital, we really worry about the patient's with anorexia nervosa who are coming in for metabolic stabilization. And particularly in those patients, we do tend to start very low, 10 kilocalories per kilo per day. But you know, I think the important thing is that you, you do increase because you do run the risk of underfeeding if, you, if you're not increasing the feed, and then you might perpetuate some of their underlying problems. So we aim to go up by 10 kilocalories per kilo every 24 hours until we've reached their requirements. Um, and if you have a problem, then we don't stop the feed. We will reduce it back to the previous level and give them a bit more time. And, and you've then got, you can use that time to replace electrolytes and, and try and deal with the fluid problems that you might see. So, yes, I, I, I've often had debates with, with colleagues about starting too slowly and starting too fast. I think the important thing is that whatever rate you do start at, you are moving up quickly but also moving down if you have a problem. So, so it's, it's looking at the patient in front of you, looking at the electrolytes, which I hope, you know, for these high risk patients, you'd be having at least daily, if not twice daily, um, and, and then reacting accordingly. And Pete, how does your practice or experience compare to Des's? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I, I agree entirely with everything that Desi said there. Sometimes very difficult. It's not a team who are, uh, you know, are used to seeing nutrition support patients a lot. You know, it's very hard to convince them to do twice a day electrolytes, particularly if the levels aren't low. But I think, yeah, there's been so much debate around the calories per kilo. But I think all the experts are more or less saying the same thing now. And that's start off low and build up swiftly with generous electrolyte provision. I think um, the reason the NICE guidance has been criticised for being overcautious is because people didn't build up to the full amount over four to seven days, like it said. And if they weren't getting the support from the monitoring, or there were very slight drops in electrolytes, they were maybe keeping them at 10 calories per kilo for too long. But really, um, hopefully it's not more than the first day that they're on 10 calories per kilo. And I think you know, slight drops in potassium, magnesium and phosphate, you can still build up providing you're giving those prophylactic electrolytes. So if you have a, a, a potassium that I don't know is is 3.2, but you're giving adequate two millimoles per kilo, I would say you can still continue to build, build the feed up. It's only if they're starting to get severely low levels, you know, say less, less than uh, three with potassium or less than 0.4 with your, your magnesium or phosphate, it's then you might hold the level and keep your generous supplementation of um, electrolytes. But, you know, just modest drops, I would say, keep building it up as long as you're giving the electrolytes. Um, but I'm keen to see if Des agrees with me on that. I, I, I do agree, Pete. I, I was just interested in this, um, the whole debate around this. But in, in the year, I think, after NICE guidelines came out on this, we did a survey of, of, of Baypen members. So quite a few hundred people from the dietetic, pharmacy, nursing and medical backgrounds. Um, and we, we, we asked about their attitudes to the NICE guidance on refeeding. And um, roughly around half the people thought it was reasonable a quarter thought they were too cautious and a, thought, and a quarter thought that they were too risky. So <laughs> it, it's, uh, I think we said so the NICE guidelines were sort of around the middle, but I think in the sort of, it's actually 15 years, isn't it now, since it's uh, 15, 16 years since it's come out. I think everyone's sort of moving to this start slowly, but increase fairly rapidly measuring and replacing as, as necessary. And I think those healthy debates, you know, create the guidance of the future, don't they? We, we're yeah. constantly looking at what we're doing, hopefully, and reflecting and thinking, is this best for our patients? So, yeah, we've focused on refeeding syndrome primarily in the secondary care setting with having access to uh, the blood tests, intravenous supplementation uh, if needed. Now, many individuals may commence oral nutritional support and tube feeding in the community. So would both of you say uh, or comment on whether you feel nutrition support can be commenced safely in the community in individuals at risk of refeeding? It's a difficult one, that one, Anne. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Just putting you on the spot, because actually yeah. this is what dietitians are often yeah. faced with. And, you know, I know in my clinical practice, I've had patients who have refused to go into hospital. Sometimes yeah. their oncology patients have had a really sort of not bad experience, but the negative connotations of being in hospital, going through treatment. So you then get to the stage where they might be reinstating their feeding after a period of time or starting feeding. And you're trying to negotiate with them as to whether you might start that at hospital or yeah. at home. And, you know, what can you put in place 
because for me it's been a bit of a nightmare and a worry and I've probably spent you know nights losing sleep over it. Sure so so in in the community obviously it'll be very hard to get daily blood tests and daily observations and and you'd worry wouldn't you that someone might have a problem and then there'll be no one there to to have a look. But in in practice you know in in 15 years now of of thinking about patients with refeeding syndrome it is actually very rare to see a really significant problem now and the handful of patients I can think of where we we did see a problem it was in patients who were really at the extremes so very low BMIs patients who had not had anything to eat or drink for a long time but very occasionally you'd see in someone you, you weren't really expecting to and that's why it's so difficult to predict and it'd be really it can be difficult but I think I think for those patients who are low risk, or they have some risk, but it's the low risk. I, I think it would be reasonable to start feeding in the community and just to be sensible, start slowly again, build up. And if you can get some blood tests done, if not daily, then every other day or something like that for those first few days, that would be reasonably reassuring. I think for anyone who is at high risk, I would I'd be very keen to see them in hospital, but you know, then again, I, I'm not dealing with patients in the community and I'm, it might be that you're dealing with a lot of people who are high risk and we're just not seeing it because they're not coming in and they might be all right. So I don't know, Pete, have you, have you come across the community setting? Bob? Yeah. I mean, my, my heart sank when um, brought <laughs> this up, to be honest with you. Um, so Sorry, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a good point because uh because the community dietitians have an absolute struggle with this. Um, mm. I've encountered it where um, we've had patients brought in to have peg tubes put in, et cetera, or a nasogeginal tube or something. And they say, all right, we'll bring them in as day case on the gastro unit. Dietitian prescribes the feed, off they go, you know, and you come in and you see them and they're high risk and you try and persuade them to keep them in. And it's no, 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 it's hospital bed. You know, they're well enough to be at home, et cetera, et cetera. And it really is hard. Um, and you speak to the community dietitians and do absolutely everything you can to try and get the GP on board to do daily blood tests, to prescribe the, the electrolyte replacement. Um, and, you know, that often these, these oral preparations much as we said they are really good they don't taste that good I mean all right you can put them through the tubes as well but you know if you're leaving it all up to a patient to do it themselves you know obviously district nurses always help as much as they can in my experience but not all of them have got the time to be going out and you know administering electrolytes several times a day or something you know so it, it really is very very difficult to to follow the recommendations on this and we actually had this i think it was bay pen 2016 we had uh, a very impressive expert panel including mike stroud clinical chemist uh, callum livingston alison culkin and there was a community dietitian whose name i can't remember i'm ashamed to say but she was absolutely brilliant but she just summed up how difficult it is to do in the community and you know uh, thankfully as des says i've not heard of any severe cases or anyone coming to harm but they are high risk and you know i think we just need to try and support our community dietitians as much as we can if we can help to talk to gps pharmacists etc and you know um nursing staff in the community to just try and convince them the importance of just this first week the close monitoring and the administering the electrolytes etc but it's a difficult task 
Yeah, Des, you've got well, something yes. to add. One thing that might help us a bit in this is that um, outside the patients with eating disorders, most people who are at very high risk of refeeding syndrome don't seem to have a high, a large appetite and they are fairly moderate in their intake. And it's only when their appetite starts to return that they're often safer to eat. And so actually we can, we sometimes use that as a marker of when their appetite does return, that they're perhaps out of the highest risk. And so hopefully that can be a little bit reassuring, you know, for patients perhaps don't want as much as they need initially and then and then as their appetite returns their refeeding syndrome risk uh, has reduced by that point um so are there any cases that you have seen in practice that either of you have seen really that you'd like to share with the audience i i have one case i think we've talked a lot about the fluid and also about the thiamine but w- one thing i'd really like to highlight in these in these patients who are at very high risk of refeeding syndrome is is they're very vulnerable to infection. And, and, and one, one case that comes to mind is someone who seven days into their feeding developed a very low sodium. And, and we were all a little perplexed as to what was causing this low sodium. And the usual markers, you know, the usual tests for steroid deficiency and uh, SIDH and so forth all came back and slight, somewhat inconclusive. And it was over the weekend when no one was around that they'd started to develop a very low temperature and a very low blood sugar. And um, those three things, low temperature, low blood sugar and low BMI should alert all of us um, to another of these syndromes that I think you could class as a refeeding syndrome um, of that they're called the deadly triad and are a marker of severe sepsis. Mm. And um, these patients are very vulnerable and that, 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 that those three things I think should alert us immediately to, to possibility of sepsis and broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, so if I was going to highlight one case and obviously I'm care of the elderly wards they're very used to seeing this um but sometimes it can it can be missed Pete have you got an interesting case you'd like to share yeah, yeah I'll just uh, add a bit to, to what Des said I mean um low albumin still the myth that it's caused by malnutrition is uh is is huge you know I it's something I've I've ranted on for for a, most of my dietetic career, I think, and uh, still the myth exists. And um, when you when you see an incredibly malnourished person come in, um, particularly if it's an anorexia nervosa patient, and they've got a low albumin, then we know it's not due to the starvation. So it's probably that they've got some sort of sepsis going on. Um, so classically, it's well documented in the literature that actually, you know. Uh, albumin doesn't drop in um, anorexia nervosa. So if you if you get someone with a, a low albumin, it's because they've got an infection and increased vascular permeability, and the albumin has leaked into their tissues. So you don't just assume, as as I've seen happen, that uh, oh, it's down to the malnutrition. You have to think what's going on. They might not have enough energy to generate a high CRP or a raised white cell count. And if they've got hypothermia as well, then then that should really raise the red flag. So you would need to think, as Des said, about uh, broad spectrum antibiotics and not filling them full of protein, which is what everyone seems to think you need to do. In terms of my interesting refeeding case, well, this is probably going to be big confession time, I suppose, though, because <laughs> part of the reason um i'm so uh 
anxious about the effects of normal saline on people. And one of the reasons I've learned so much about it is, um, what we say, I don't know what, 10, 15 years ago, there was a patient being brought in for a, a, an operation and the surgeons were great. They said, right, we want to give them preoperative buildup. Um, Pete, we want you to monitor their refeeding syndrome and make sure they get lots of electrolytes, et cetera, et cetera. And at that time, I think it was pre-gift us up and definitely pre-nice guidance on intravenous fluid. And I believed that myth that you shouldn't give potassium in in 5% dextrose because it would drive it into the cells. And if we did use it, we'd be giving them far too many calories. So I advise them to give them lots of prophylactic potassium in normal saline. And the patient gained, I think it was seven kilos within a week. Initially, everyone was delighted because they thought, oh, wow, they're gaining weight wonderfully. But uh, but when we realized that they just look like the Michelin man, and then I thought, hmm, yes, this was this was my uh, my fault. But I have to say that luckily they did mobilize the uh, extra fluid and they did successfully get through their operation. So there wasn't any lasting harm. And uh, I've learned a lot, which hopefully I can now pass on to people. So you know, it does happen. People do get edematous. You refeed them. That sodium and water comes out the cells. If you're then pumping them full of more sodium and water, it's got to go somewhere. Hopefully it just gives them peripheral edema like we saw in this patient. But if you come to Bay Pen, you're going to hear of a case where an anorexia nervosa patient got filled up with intravenous fluids for electrolytes and ended up with pulmonary edema and on the ICU. So, you know, it is something to be aware of. And you will hear people coming out with myths, you know, um, particularly, dare I say, medical staff again saying, oh, it's all right. They'll just pee out the extra fluid. They'll pee out the sodium. They don't. We know that from studies and I've seen it in practice. And hopefully the the teams around you learned a lot from that (laughs) experience too, Pete. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say we've all been there, Pete. (laughs) I've certainly been there too. Yeah. Um, So finally, are there any resources you'd like to direct our audience to? Obviously, there's the Bapen Biffa top tips for preventing and managing refeeding syndrome that can be found on the Bapen website. In the show notes, we'll obviously list some other resources. Is there anything you'd like to point the audience to if they'd like to read more on the subject? Well, if I was going to point them to one thing, it would probably be um, a review that Jeremy Nightingale and I did on refeeding syndrome in frontline gastroenterology. Um, I think it was last year. Um, I'm sure we can put the reference on. Uh, or maybe it was 2020 now. Um, but that, no, that that would be the thing I would point them to. Pete? Um, no, I was actually going to mention that reference as well, because that, that is excellent. I think, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, we've, we've gone on about nice a lot here but do have a look at it you know it, it's it's been updated every year since 2006 there was a big update in 2017 so it is great and physiologically it all makes sense so certainly you know make sure you're familiar with that the the, uh, the, the penge pocket guide is, is brilliant as well people have picked up on this they're saying start a little bit higher than nice did but really i think the message is still more or less the same in that we're starting cautiously monitoring carefully and uh and giving plenty of electrolytes so so that's that's a good resource as well and do do have a look at the stuff online about the minnesota experiment as well you know that's a, a classic piece of uh 
classic piece of um, research that was done uh, ethically or unethically, should we say, on human volunteers in laboratory conditions, but uh, some amazing things that came out. Even just the stuff on the the psychological effects of starvation in terms of mm. causing confusion, depression, uh, anxiety, etc. You know, always see all these things in these patients that come in, and it's not always put down to their starvation, but you do see miraculous improvements in mood, etc. When you feed them properly, and again, that's not just down to the calories; it's giving all the micronutrients as well. So have a look at those. But I think those are your key things. Penge nice and 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 that review as well oh and stanger had a very good paper as well if you look up if you if you google stanger and refeeding that's a, an excellent paper um uh, that, that goes through all the physiology and it's actually got a lot of case studies as well so it actually gives some clinical cases so when you uh, when you do get these skeptics which you still do saying oh dietitians bang on about refeeding syndrome ad nauseum and we never see anything go wrong you can point them to this and say that look no there was a person that got a permanent brain injury through not giving them thiamine thanks for for that those resources will obviously be in the show notes um and they're also uh, there's a list of references included within the bape and biffa top tips as well so do visit that um i'd like to round up now and i'd like to express my huge appreciation to pete and des for sharing their knowledge and expertise uh, obviously built up over many years uh, of clinical practice and um, hopefully you've all learned a lot through this podcast uh, and we'll learn more through the resources and uh, more to come through things like the BAPEN conference. Um, I think the key message for me was that in hospital where you've got access to the monitoring of bloods and maybe uh, the intravenous route, uh, start off slow, build up swiftly, uh, but closely monitor and uh, supplement. So thank you once again to Des and Pete. I think we've had an excellent discussion and uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening in. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, it's been great to be accompanied by both Pete and Des to explore the topic of refeeding syndrome today, including identifying those at risk to learn how to best manage and prevent it. Further reading is available in the show notes and the top tips are free to download from the Biffa section of the Bapen website. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then do share it with your colleagues, write a five-star review, and if you'd like to keep in touch with Bapen, hear Bapen's news and access further educational resources, please do follow at Bapen UK across social media channels or visit the website www.bapen.org.uk. Many thanks once again to Pete and Des and to you, our listeners, for dialing in today.